Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. The presenting sponsor of Majority 54 is Sunbasket. It's January. Time for New Year's resolutions. We have a really fun tradition. We have dinner with our friends Sam and Julie almost every year. And after dinner, we go around and talk about how we did on last year's resolutions. And we set new ones for the new year. Last year, mine was eat healthier. And I did pretty good. So this year, mine was eat healthier, but healthier than last year. <laughs> you want, you want to make it a, a way of life rather than just something that you do, right? Yeah, I go two weeks at a time and I'm like, I need to do better than this. <laughs> so with Sunbasket, it's super easy because they deliver healthy meals right to your door. You don't even have to think about it. That's the best way to stick to a resolution is to not have to make any decisions about it. I'm talking ingredients like organic produce, responsibly raised meat, sustainably sourced fish, organic pasture raised eggs, and organic non-GMO tofu. Oh, and house-made sauces that you can't find anywhere else. Diana's resolutions, by the way, are always like the other night when she said, I'm going to do a freestanding handstand. <laughs> well, you got to set very difficult to reach goals. I don't know if I'm going to do it, but if I will, it'll be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all personalized. Some basket lets you mix and match from paleo, lean and clean. That's the one we choose. Gluten-free, vegan, vegetarian, Mediterranean, and more. And with Sunbasket, you have total flexibility. You can cancel any time, skip any time, and choose any meal plan that you want. By the way, for her to reach this year's resolution, she's going to have to fix the oblique muscle that she tore reaching last year's resolution. Well, it's a, it's a two-part resolution. Yeah. Really. <laughs> <laughs> so go to sunbasket.com slash 54 today and learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash 54 for $35 off. Thumbbasket.com slash five four. That's the numbers five four. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. In keeping with the theme of helping you engage on the most divisive issues, today we're going to tackle guns. Now, I have an F rating from the NRA, and they've spent millions against me. The leaders of the NRA, they kind of hate me, but they loathe Shannon Watts. I, however, have a feeling that you're going to love her. We closed 2017 talking to a lifelong activist and imploring you to deepen your involvement. So it makes sense to open 2018 talking to somebody who grabbed an oar a few years ago and hasn't stopped rowing since. Moms Demand Action, one of the most effective groups working to reduce gun violence, was founded by a stay-at-home mom of five kids the day after the tragedy at Sandy Hook. And this is the part where you'd expect me to say that Shannon Watts lost a loved one. But that's not what happened. Shannon had left her job as a communications executive to raise her kids in Indianapolis. She was far from Newtown, Connecticut, and her family's never been touched by gun violence. But when the terrible events of Sandy Hook started appearing all over the news, as a mom, she felt obligated to do all she could to protect American kids. Turns out, a lot of moms felt the same way. 
And today, Moms Demand Action has chapters in every single state. And as you're about to learn, the work that they do is inspiring, and so is a conversation with Shannon. Here you go. I wanted to start with the day of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. You know, you were folding uh, your kids' laundry at home in Indiana when news broke of it. Uh, Tell me about that morning. Yeah, so I was uh, doing laundry, which is a full-time job for a mom of five, and (laughs) watching the news come in and started to see that there were these alerts about a potential school shooting in Connecticut. And I can remember thinking, you know, dear God, please let this not be as bad as it seems. And as we all know, it was a million times worse than really anyone could ever fathom. The idea that 20 babies, six-year-olds, would be slaughtered in the sanctity of an elementary school along with their educators. Um, I still can't wrap my mind around it five years later, quite honestly. And it just felt to me like our country was broken. I felt like I had to do something. And if I didn't, I'd be culpable the next time this would happen. And we all know uh, that it would happen, and it has. Had you ever been involved in politics or organizing or anything like that before? Not really. I mean, I gave to political candidates. Uh, I was one of the people who fell for every single email Barack Obama sent me uh, to send him $5 to hopefully have dinner. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I was never um, an activist in any way. In fact, I was a corporate communications executive for, um, you know, pretty conservative companies. And uh, my my husband voted for George Bush twice, um, much to my dismay. (laughs) And you know, this, this was not something that was part of my day-to-day life was was getting involved in politics. Um, and so when I did start Moms Demand Action the day after the Sandy Hook shooting, um, basically through a Facebook page, I knew nothing about activism or how to organize people. I did know how to communicate a message because of my background in public relations. I did know how to um, to get something noticed uh, in the media and how to create a sophisticated brand. And I think that served us well in, in the short term. But really, it's the the knowledge of, of these amazing women and gun violence survivors and all caring Americans who have helped us get to, to where we are now. So you knew how to create a brand, you knew how to do those things, but you also only had 75 Facebook friends at the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was not a social media phenom. Uh, I had 75 Facebook friends, and that seemed like a lot at the time to me. Like uh, maybe I was exposing myself too much. Uh, in retrospect, that's hysterical. But yeah, I, I I wasn't even on Twitter. I think I had a Twitter account that I didn't use. And it was really the amazing uh, power of social media, but also lightning in a bottle. I do think everything fell our way to help create uh, what what we have today, which is, you know, more than 4 million supporters, 70,000 active volunteers like me who wake up and work on this every day, a chapter in every state. Um, that is lightning in a bottle. And, and there are many organizations that would really kill for that kind of grassroots power. And I'm just incredibly grateful we tapped into it. So the very first Facebook post that you wrote, what did you say? I remember saying that women and moms needed to organize around this issue and that we needed to have a march, uh, which is interesting because we've actually become organizers. And and while rallies and marches were part of our early strategy, um, you know, that just goes to show you how little I knew about organizing at the time. But it was, we needed to march on Washington. What result in the early days were you hoping for? Or were you even thinking about that at, at the outset? 
I wasn't thinking of a result mainly because I really knew nothing about our nation's gun laws. And honestly, shame on me for not knowing that there was a crisis that wasn't just mass shootings, right? 93 Americans are shot and killed every day in this country in their in their communities, in their homes. And so I just knew that we needed an uprising of, of women and mothers. I knew that the, the way to counteract the gun lobby and the pundits who were getting on television right after Sandy Hook and saying the solution was more guns was to have more women involved. What was it like when you very first started, like the first few weeks? Oh, well, the, I got a death threat within 12 hours of starting my Facebook page. Within 12 hours? Oh, yeah. I, I um, So all my information was public, and I've been doxxed many times since then. But uh, people immediately started texting me, calling me, emailing me, driving by my house. Um, I can remember having to call the police within the first week uh, because of the threats I was receiving. So there was an underbelly of America that I did not know existed, that did absolutely not want Moms Demand Action to exist. Um, and And that was interesting to grapple with on top of the calls I was getting from women and mothers in places like Houston and Billings and Charleston, um, cities and states where you don't necessarily think that women would be willing to stand up on this issue. And that's where we found we were, in fact, most energized. Did you think about stopping? I mean, when you had death threats? Uh, Many times. Oh, you know, not even because of the death threats. I was overwhelmed. If you can imagine going from being a stay-at-home mom who has five kids at the time, elementary, middle, and high school, uh, I I was overwhelmed by the amount of work it took to get this up and going and off the ground. And so were many other of the volunteers who helped me. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you know anything about type A women, there's no going back once you start to move forward. Mm -hmm. I'm married to one. so. (laughs) (laughs) So you start with 75 Facebook friends. You put it out to them. It obviously grows quickly. But now it's this thing where, like last year when I ran for the Senate, we did tons of events where uh, women in St. Louis and Kansas City and all over the state were showing up in, you know, Moms Demand Action shirts. And also, in addition to that, not just showing up, but like clearly very thoughtful about organizing, like very early in the campaign asking me, will you take a picture with me in my T-shirt, <laughs> right? Which I, I was so impressed by. I always said yes. And, um, and then, you know, now I've this year I've been all over the country doing political events, and I've and I've run into uh, the same thing everywhere I went. You know, just tons of volunteers uh, out there organizing and being a part of things, all with in their t-shirts. W- what happened in between? Like, what were the three biggest factors, of the, or the, who were the three people? Whatever it is, like, how did it get from mm-hmm. point A to point B? So I started this Facebook page. I had seventy-five Facebook friends. I had a friend who I didn't know in Virginia. I met him through another friend, and that's how we were friends on Facebook. He was an avid gun owner. And when he saw my post on my own personal Facebook page that I had started Moms to Me in Action, he connected me to a woman in Brooklyn. Um, and that started this big group of supporters for me in New York City who, who were helping every day. And then um, I put out my own press release because I did have a— When you say helping, do you mean they were spreading it more around social media? I mean, Mm -mm. they were—what were they doing? I mean, they were uh, meeting with me regularly, uh, having conference calls, helping figure out how we organize and create more chapters, um, creating the Facebook pages for each state, Mm. um, getting more volunteers involved, people they knew, friends and family from across the country. And— it was really like a domino effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also had women helping me in Silicon Valley with trademarking our name and creating a, 
a website, and uh, I put out a press release. I was on the cover of USA Today within a week, and that brought in tons within of— a, Within uh, a week of the within shooting? Within a week of my Facebook page. Yeah. The day after Sandy Hook shooting, I was on the cover of USA Today. I didn't remember that, but that's pretty amazing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And that, and that, okay, so that, I would say being on, uh, being in USA Today was a, a major domino because it brought in so many other volunteers and people who were interested and obviously gave us national clout. Um, and then there were people with, with knowledge about gun violence prevention and how to message, right? We could have been, um, we could have made some real easy messaging mistakes early on. This is an incredibly polarized political mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. And I had people every step of the way helping me figure out how do we how do we stay moderate? How do we support gun owners? Um, how do we make sure that we are involving women in a, a smart, strategic way so that when they organize, um, they're as powerful as they possibly can be and, and working with both sides of the aisle. And also we created a really sophisticated brand, which I... I don't even know how we started this, but this idea of if you don't have a picture of it, it never happened. Mm. So we have, you know, women who are constantly trying to get pictures of themselves in Moms Demand Action t-shirts everywhere, whether it's a concert or a political event. Um, if if they didn't have a picture of it in their Moms Demand Action t-shirt, it essentially has not happened. Mm. It, I mean, it also created pride around being for gun safety measures. Pride around being for gun safety measures, but also I do think there is something to empowering women um, and making them feel like badasses mm-hmm. when they take on the most powerful lobby in the nation. And for well, so they, long, they are when they do that. And you, they what are. you did was say was just say it. it what, we, what we did was to say it and to empower them mm-hmm. to to do it publicly and not to be afraid. Because this, you know, when we go to rallies and we have children and strollers. Um, we're often surrounded by mainly men who are open carrying AR-15s, um, hmm. semi-automatic rifles, Glocks, whatever, depends on the state. But that can be very terrifying. And what we're saying is there's there's safety and strength in numbers. And so many issues like this, including gun violence prevention, have been run mainly by men as think tanks in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And what we are saying is Women are the secret sauce to organizing in this country on so many social issues, and gun violence prevention is no different. And until we organize them and get them involved, we knew there wouldn't be change. You also, I think, I think you'd agree, you have the added credibility as being, as really just being moms who care about this, of nobody can really assign you to you the motives of a special interest or ever. I mean, it's, it's a stark comparison. Yeah, the, the NRA's attack on me has always been that um, I'm AstroTurf, which I guess means that I am a you know college-educated woman who had a career and decided to do this um, as a volunteer. Well, what, I mean, let's, for people listening who don't know, I mean, AstroTurf is a political term that means what? Basically that I'm not real, right? That um, because I'm a, a woman or a mom that I must be uh, what they call a, a Bloomberg whore. So Mayor Bloomberg funds. There's a nice uh, term. Jeez. I know a lot. They call me that a lot. Mm. Um, Mayor Bloomberg funds a lot of our our organization's work, and right from the beginning, it was Shannon Watts can't be real. She has to be something that was created by a man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in right. fact, I am I am completely authentic, and and so are the volunteers and the moms who who work with us. And by the way, women are the majority of the voting public, mm-hmm. and. 
when they show up in mass in their Red Moms Demand Action t-shirts, lawmakers listen. So their their manner of discrediting you, in addition to being like obviously misogynist, was also sort of to say to people who who they were afraid of losing to your side of the argument, losing those people to your side of the argument, saying, no, 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 you can treat her in your mind the same way you think of, uh, you know, a progressive politician who disagrees with you on guns, like that you can put them in the same box. Exactly. And she's worse because she's a woman um, and therefore, you know, her opinion is is not as valuable. She's mm-hmm. not a gun owner or uh, she's not a real mom. That was another thing they bring up a lot because <laughs> I was a consultant when I was a stay-at-home mom. You know, I'm not a, a real stay-at-home mom. So <laughs> they, they've had a lot of, of interesting misogynistic and sexist attacks. I can't imagine there are very many women working for the NRA's marketing department. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently not, if those are the tactics they've chosen, right? When you think about the other side, the NRA in particular, what do you think of as their strengths in terms of making their side of the argument? What do they have going for them? The NRA's main strength is that it has a $350 million annual budget. Um, they don't have strength in grassroots. Um, and I'll give you an example. Last week in Florida, the basically the NRA's Petri dish, um, there was a hearing on three different gun bills, bad bills, uh, guns in churches, guns in private schools, guns, uh, open carry. And more than 50 Moms Demand Action volunteers showed up and, and volunteered or testified against the bill. One NRA lobbyist testified for the bill. Hmm. So they do not have grassroots strength. They do not have strength in members, but they don't need them because even if they had zero members, they still have a $350 million annual budget that mainly comes, people don't realize, but it mainly comes from gun manufacturers. Um, that is their strength. Mm-hmm. And do you, so what people would say to that, uh, like the NRA would say, look, we have we have these members all over the country. We have this enormous membership. But what you're saying is, yeah, they have a big list, but you're saying it's nowhere near as engaged or as active as they portray it to be. Right. So the NRA says they have about 5 million members. We don't believe that's true. Um, it's also an aging out demographic, mainly white men over age 50. Um, so, you know, the, the NRA's real strength is, is in the, the annual budget they have. Um, and even Frank Luntz, who is a Republican pollster, a few years ago polled NRA members and found that more than 74 percent support common sense gun laws like background checks. So mm-hmm. it's really about a very radicalized, extreme NRA leadership. It really isn't about the the so-called members of, of the NRA. You know, when uh, when you run for office, in my experience, you you get all these different questionnaires from different different groups that want to assess your positions on things and then decide whether to endorse you. And, you know, I got an F rating. That's a pretty well-known thing now at this point from the NRA. <laughs> uh, but what I remember about that questionnaire is that it actually – is mostly not about gun rights. The questions are not mostly about the rights of gun owners or the right to own guns. The questions are mostly about the right to sell guns, which is, I think, goes to your point that people don't realize that, you know, that $350 million budget, it comes from the big gun companies and the NRA really serves them by helping them sell as many guns as possible. Right. This is not your grandfather's NRA. This is not a hunting and and fishing organization that serves to uh, train people anymore or or just advocate for their members. It really is about 
having no gun laws. I mean, that's what we've realized. If if you've watched what the NRA's strategy has been over the last several decades, it's been to build up a permitting system, right? So that people could carry guns everywhere but have a permit. Well, they got pretty much everything they wanted. So now what we see them doing is to tear that permitting system down. They want guns everywhere for anyone, no questions asked, and and with absolutely no training, no permitting. Um, and and that's the direction they were headed in, frankly, before Moms Demand Action started. Yeah, it's funny. Like sometimes in the in the national debate over it, uh, we find ourselves sort of walking onto their turf, which is what they want, right? Like for instance, this thing over um, silencers, where now they want to legalize silencers, and and you know when you see that debated by pundits, they'll they'll actually debate whether or not it's really for hearing protection, whether you really need it, when in reality. It's just the companies that fund the NRA are like, you know, we could make more money if we sell more silencers. That's right. So there is what's called a Trump slump, which I think is fascinating. So uh, gun manufacturer sales have dropped over $100 million since this time last year because there's no boogeyman in the Mm -hmm. White House to make people afraid that your guns will be taken away. So they have to make up those dollars somehow. And I liken it to um, selling people Barbies, right? So if you're a family that owns 13 Barbies, you're probably not in the market for another Barbie. But you are going to buy Barbie shoes and a Barbie dream house and a Barbie car. And that's what silencers are. It's It's just another, yeah, it's just an accessory, another way for the gun lobby to make money. Jason, did you know that the average family visits five totally different websites before booking a vacation rental? Yes, of course. Everyone knows. (laughs) Now you can spend less time planning your next trip, and a lot more time relaxing with Tripping.com, the world's number one site for vacation rentals, trusted by millions of travelers and featured by the New York Times, Travel and Leisure, Forbes, and more. We actually went on our first trip, like as a family, with our four-year-old last summer. It was my first time on a duck boat. Very exciting. Yeah. With Tripping.com, one search lets you filter, compare, and sort over 10 million available properties on trusted sites like VRBO, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and more. Don't wonder if you're getting the best deal on that New Year's Eve cabin or winter beach vacation. You'll save an average of 18% per night by booking your vacation with tripping.com. So the thing is, when you go on a trip with a four-year-old, it turns out one of the things that happens is you can't just get like a rollaway bed and say, (laughs) this is your bed and not do all of your same routines back home. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, you're going to stay in the room, obviously. But what we found out was uh, you you have to turn out all the lights and go lay in your bed until he falls asleep. And by the time he does... Like you're asleep. So our no bed- reading lights, nothing. Yeah. So our bedtime ended up being 8 p.m. every night. During I mean, trip. I got a lot of rest. Yeah, I was, I was super rested at the end of it. So don't forget, if you want to save time and money, have more time for napping during your vacation <laughs> while booking the perfect vacation rental for your next trip, head to tripping.com slash majority five four today. Vacation rentals offer flexibility, perks, and amenities that hotels don't, like multiple bedrooms, backyards, hot tubs, free Wi-Fi, and even fully stocked kitchens. It's great for families and large groups. That's tripping.com slash majority54. Tripping.com slash majority54. Looking back over the last five years, what would you say are the biggest lessons that you've learned about, first, the fight for reasonable gun legislation? The first biggest thing I've learned is that this is not an intractable issue. This is not an issue that's polarizing the American public. This is a political issue with some members of Congress, some members of state legislatures that are beholden to the gun lobby. 
thanks to a quid pro quo for campaign donations. And that is solvable, right? So it's a matter of getting these people out, getting them replaced, fighting, advocating. That doesn't happen overnight. Um, There's a tweet that you'll see on the Sandy Hook mark uh, that says something like, you know, if Congress didn't act after Sandy Hook, that's the day the nation lost its soul and it was, there was no way to go back. And I want to find whoever wrote that tweet and pinch the fat part of his arm because Mm -hmm. it is so cynical and it is so untrue. Mm -hmm. This is a, this is a democracy. This is America. This is about activating on an issue. You can't just sit on the sidelines and say, wow, this is horrible. You have to get involved. And what I've learned is that when you do get involved, things change. Um, In the last five years, we have killed literally hundreds of bad NRA bills that would have sailed through state houses. So things like permitless carry, um, guns on college campuses, guns in K-12 schools, expanding Stand Your Ground. And we fight the same bills in the same legislatures every year. You have to be vigilant. They're coming back. We've also passed good bills in the last five years. Um, In eight states, we've helped close the the loophole that allows private sale of guns with no background check, bringing the total to 19. So about 50% of all Americans now live in states that require a background check on every gun sale. Mm -hmm. Something I'm most proud of is that in 25 states and the District of Columbia, we have passed laws that disarm domestic abusers. Mm -hmm. Red and blue states, 25 states now have either broadened the definition of what a domestic abuser is to include dating partners and stalkers, or they have put teeth in their laws that allow police to confiscate the guns domestic abusers already have. A lot of people don't realize that they can keep their guns. Well, and a lot of people don't realize, I think, how important that is, because here you have people who have demonstrated, uh, unfortunately demonstrated a propensity to settle arguments with violence and you know, in, in many states where this happens, people say, well, it's because it's a misdemeanor charge. And they don't realize, yeah, a lot of the time it didn't start as a misdemeanor charge. And, you know, there was a, an agreement, a negotiation of some kind. But this is we're talking about people who have demonstrated that they you know, have a, a bad habit of settling these disagreements and, and handling their anger by being violent. And you talk about something where the vast majority of Americans obviously agree, like that's not a person who should have a gun. Exactly. And and we know that having committed domestic gun violence is a major red flag for being a mass shooter in mm, the future. Mm-hmm. But but on top of that, more than 50 American women are shot and killed by current or former intimate partners every single month. I want to go back for a second. You mentioned, and, and I know exactly what you mean, this after a mass shooting, you sort of see it over and over again, where somebody, and then it makes its way around social media because it's sort of become a, a piece of conventional wisdom where somebody says, well, look, if we didn't do anything after Sandy Hook, we are never going to do anything. And I think the big fallacy of that is that it assumes that Congress not taking action is an expression of how we as the country feel. And your point is, that's not the case. Like, we as a country are pretty well decided on this, and Congress is just not doing what it's told. Well, I think another lesson I've learned is that Congress is often where this work ends and not where it begins. Mm -hmm. I know we would all like a cathartic congressional moment. I understand that. But if you look at marriage equality, when activists originally went to Congress, the gift they got in return was DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. So they pivoted and went to state houses and boardrooms and demanded changes in state laws and in corporate policies. And that momentum built on the ground eventually 
uh, impacted the way the Supreme Court ruled and the way Congress acted. And the same will happen on this issue. I, I had hoped it would happen because of the election of Hillary Clinton. Um, but this is a marathon and not a sprint. And we just have to keep working in the states and in, in boardrooms until we have the right president and Congress in place. Do you still feel like you're doing this for your kids or do you feel like you're doing it for your grandkids? Or You know, I have met so many gun violence survivors along the way. Um, in fact, I've become close friends with one of the mothers whose daughter was shot and killed at Sandy Hook. I feel like I wake up and do this work in many ways for them, you know, because they can't. I can't imagine working on this issue and grieving, and yet there are so many gun violence victims who do uh, and survivors. But I am hopeful that this will happen in my lifetime, 100%. I mean, this this is moving very quickly, marriage equality. You know, it seemed like it took forever. And if you talk to activists, they were working on the ground for a while and it felt like it was overnight. They would tell you it wasn't. I do think the same thing will happen on this issue. If we look at the elections in November, if you look at uh, the fact that we won eight out of eight races in which we endorsed, including the governors of Virginia and New Jersey, I think it shows a tipping point. Polling data showed that gun violence was the third most important reason people voted and in, in Virginia. And in fact, Ed Gillespie's A rating from the NRA hurt him significantly. I think we're starting to get to a tipping point where you have to be on the right side of this issue or it is going to penalize you. It's also, you know, you were saying I, that you hope uh, that it happens in your lifetime, that the change uh, that you're trying to make happen, that we're trying to make happen. The other piece to that, and what I tell folks all the time, is that, you know, the thing about really caring and about being involved in public service, either as an activist or an elected official or whatever, is you you sort of also have to make peace with the idea that it may not happen in your lifetime. And it's still just as worthwhile for you to spend the time uh, focused on it. Yeah, because the reality is, even if we make major changes, there's so much change to be made on this issue at the state level. And you have to be vigilant. I mean, if you talk to people with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, they will tell you the same lobbyists show up every year in the same state legislatures trying to roll back the progress they've made. And we're doing that real time right now. Mm -hmm. There will be a time at which we've made a lot of change and we have to protect that change. But I also think, you know, you were very brave, for example, when you did the ad in which you disassembled, I believe it was an AR-15. Yeah, uh, and, and, you know, I... I think it takes bravery, too, to be willing to say, you know, I don't know how this is going to play publicly, but I'm going to stand on the side of what is right. And, you know, you did that with your ad. It's why it went viral. Ninety percent of Americans support stronger gun laws, um, but yet you were attacked by the gun lobby. And that's because this very vocal minority wants absolutely no progress on this issue at all. And they see every single amount of incremental change as a slippery slope. Well, and for a long time, what they've been able to do is convince politicians that uh, it is an untenable position to to oppose the NRA, that it's it's like coming out for ending Social Security or something, that it's just, you just can't do it. And, you know, obviously, I mean, I appreciate you saying that, but like one of the things that makes the environment more and more fertile for people to come out and be very clear about their position on this uh, is the work that you're doing, is the is the fact that this is something um, 
especially now for the first time, that uh, you're not just going to have the downside politically. There's a lot of people who are going to go, yeah, I'm for that. And, but then the other thing about that is it allows you to find out, as I knew even before I made that ad, that there are a whole lot of people on the other side who are going to go, actually, I think maybe he's right. And you've created the, the environment for that to happen. I think that's right. Uh, you know, a great example is Texas. Um, that has been a, a challenging state, but at the same time, one of our most energized chapters across the country uh, is throughout the state of Texas. And, you know, we've challenged a lot of bad laws. We've helped water them down um, in a really tough environment. And yet, just last week, a Republican came and spoke at a Moms Demand Action meeting. So I do think there's real hope. I mean, you look at Alabama, the NRA spent uh, $1 million to try to elect Luther Strange, and then they spent tens of thousands more trying to elect Roy Moore, and they lost twice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I I think we're starting to see that the NRA is in many ways a paper tiger. One of the things you're really talking about is the creation of political consequences for the first time for people who uh, are on the wrong side of this issue. I'm obviously pretty familiar with that because at Let America Vote, that's our mission is create political consequences for voter suppression. I mean, really, isn't that at the end of the day like a big part of this? It's not just about inspiring people to say what they really believe. It's also about demonstrating to you know Republicans, for instance, that, hey, if you don't do this, you may not get to come back into office. That's exactly right. And I'll give you an example. Right after the Sandy Hook shooting, um, Kelly Ayotte in the vote for uh, on Mansion Toomey was one of the only members of Congress, the only senator on the Eastern Seaboard to vote against background checks. And we told her as a fellow woman and mom that we were going to hold her accountable. And we did. I mean, we put a lot of money into that race to support her opponent. Um, We also showed up at all of her town halls. In fact, it got to the point where if you had a Moms Demand Action t-shirt, you were no longer allowed into her campaign (laughs) town halls. Um, And she lost narrowly, but make no mistake, she believe strongly that part of the reason she lost was because of that vote. Just the number of people who probably knocked on doors in Moms Demand Action shirts is easily enough to have amounted to the votes that she lost by. Yep. There's a lot of people out there who think that they have to be personally affected by something in order to properly be an advocate, properly lead on the issue and, and take action. So as somebody who wasn't personally affected, but went out and, you know, created Uh, this movement. What advice do you have for those people out there who feel really strongly, really passionately about something, but are thinking, you know, who am I to get out there and do something about this? Well, I mean, I was essentially a nobody and just decided that this was wrong. And so did so many other nobodies across the country the same day that I did to say, how can we come together and take advantage of what is a democracy? Um, if we don't use our voices, if we don't use our votes, no change will happen. And I think the key to being involved in any issue is just being passionate about it and just wanting to create change. And America gives us a framework to do that. It really is the only way that we can bring about change is to get off the sidelines. And there's so many different ways to do that. You know, a lot of people deride things like hashtag activism. But if you're a a busy mom and you have a job and a baby, you may only be able to use our stop CCR hashtag, you know, during nap time. Um, and, and that's enough. That can make a difference or sending an email or making a call or taking it even a step further, which is 
to join your local chapter of Moms Demand Action or to have an in-district meeting with your member of Congress um, or to take on a leadership position. But you can also start organizations. There's so many different ways to get involved in this country. And honestly, you know, if we're not, then we're we're really not participating fully as an American in in what we've created. And you can't count on other people to do that for you. I talk all the time about the importance of using your platform. And what you did, I think, is a perfect example of it. Because when you started, your platform was 75 friends on Facebook. And, you know, obviously that developed into something that's changed the country and will, and ultimately will change the history of the country. But I think what's sometimes overlooked is that even if it hadn't become that and it had just been something you said to your 75 friends on Facebook, you would still be using your platform. You'd still be moving things forward. That's right. I really don't think there's any effort too small and you can't be afraid to fail. You know, I, after the election was so angry and and. I feel like women running for office is also part of the solution. So in November, 13 Moms Demand Action members ran for office, 9-1. We have about 400 who are planning to run in 2018. That's cool. But I also started an organization called Rise to Run, which helps um, high school-age women and college-age women prepare to run for office, particularly women of color. And I didn't know if that would work, and, and I'm hopeful that it will. It's gotten a great start, but... It's all about getting involved in the process and finding things you're passionate about and then working on it. And I really do think, you know, Field of Dreams was right. If you build it, they will come. And it's just a matter of of using the skills you have to build it. You know, there seems to be a little bit of a theme with the folks that I talked to lately where there are a lot of folks who understandably talk about uh, the fear associated uh, with using your platform, you know, if to, to step from being somebody who hasn't been involved in a public way to saying, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to just say what I think and I'm going to, I'm going to put myself out there. And now in your case, there's literal physical fear uh, from threats and that sort of thing. So to get through all of that, what do you say to yourself to keep yourself going? Yeah, you know, I, I have to travel using an alias. Um, I often have to have security with me because of death threats that I receive. And I'm just a woman who thinks there should be a background check on every gun sale. <laughs> um, it seems absurd. And often I will just channel my fear into anger because at the end of the day, this is about saving Americans' lives. And I know we have saved so many lives, uh, particularly particularly through background check bills and through bills that disarm domestic abusers. And that's really what matters most. And, you know, if I'm afraid, it creates a ripple effect where our other volunteers are afraid. Um, in Ohio recently, our moms traveled to Kentucky to, to join them for a meeting. And in Kentucky, you can open carry in public buildings, mm-hmm. which is bizarre. So mm-hmm. our Moms Demand Action members were having a, a meeting in Kentucky, and these people walked in. They were openly caring at, at a public library. They sat in the front row of our Moms Demand Action meeting, trying to silence and intimidate us. Mm-hmm. And what our leaders did was to put Moms Demand Action pins on them, to take photos with them, and to talk to them very rationally about what they had in common. Mm-hmm. And it just isn't going to serve us to be stopped by fear and you know, you know, moms who are protecting children, they're going to be angry and not afraid. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, you rely on instinct. 
you rely on instinct. And, and you know, I just am not going to be silenced and intimidated. Um, I have a right to have an opinion on this issue in America. I think I'm on the right side of history. Um, my, my opinions and beliefs are backed by data and research, not anecdotes. And I just, I think too many people have been shot and killed in this country to stay silent. Where do I go to get a T-shirt? Go to momsdemandaction.org, and you can get uh, both uh, Every Town for Gun Safety and Moms Demand Action merchandise. We have a lot of holiday uh, wear on there. And also, you know, because next year is the year of our fifth anniversary, we are going to be celebrating our mom's five-year anniversary with special merchandise. If you play sports or work out a lot, it can trigger injuries with... Soothe. You're not going to do the... (laughs) okay you're just messing with me right now Mm, playing hard to get okay it's an on-demand massage service that delivers a hand-selected licensed and experienced massage therapist to you in the comfort of your own home hotel or office in as little as an hour you can choose the kind of massage that you want from swedish and sport to deep tissue and more you can even opt in for a couple's massage i believe it's called soothe (laughs) it's just not the same can you do the can you do the thing Mm. Okay. Therapists can earn over three and a half times what they'd make at a spa while maintaining incredible schedule flexibility. And that means that you can even book a massage for 10 p.m. on a Wednesday. That also brings the best therapist to the Soothe Network. You can book a massage as soon as today. And our listeners are going to get a special offer that's going to get you $20 off your first massage when you use our code 54. So download the Soothe. I swear, I'm pointing at him and it's not, it's not working. S-O-O-T-H-E in the iOS App Store or Google Play Store. And be sure to use our code 54 to get $20 off your first massage. Okay, this is the last one. There it is. Spa quality massage. Anytime. Anywhere. So you've probably heard people talk about the amazing shave that you can get from the Dollar Shave Club razor, especially when you use it with their Dr. Carver Shave Butter. Uh, I actually recently started using uh, Dollar Shave Club, and I started it over the holidays when I had grown a bit of a holiday beard. And instead of it hurting and cutting myself, it was actually a pretty good shave. Uh, If you're wondering why Diana hasn't spoken yet, it's because she's out of town and we had one more ad to do. And so it's just me. Hopefully you're not too disappointed. Uh, Dollar Shave Club makes products for your hair, your face, your skin, the shower, everything you need. Um, Diana actually thought that that shave looked pretty good, so I can read this part that says they have me looking and feeling amazing, and it's all their own original stuff. Um, They only use the finest premium ingredients, and they deliver it to you just like they do their razors, uh, which also Diana really likes because then I have no excuse not to shave. Usually, if I don't have a TV or a public appearance, I go as long as possible without shaving, and then she's asking me to shave. And Anyway, but if the razors keep coming, I can't claim, well, I'm I'm out of razors. Uh, Now's a great time to give Dollar Shave Club a try. You can get your first month of their best best razor, along with travel-sized versions of shave butter, uh, body cleanser, and yes, even in the Army, we uh, we called that your fourth point of contact. So wipes for your fourth point of contact uh, for just $5. After that, replacement cartridges ship for just a few bucks a month. It's the uh, Dollar Shave Club starter set. Get yours for just $5 exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash 54. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash 54. Usually this second segment is sort of a solo act, just me walking through the most common deceptive talking points on the issue and then laying out for you how I would respond. But it felt to me like a waste to do that, uh, just me, this week when we have Shannon on the show. 
Plus, I know you didn't want the conversation with Shannon to end, so we ran through the other side's arguments and we answered them together. So usually I do this part by myself, but we thought it would be cooler to try it just you and me. No, that's awesome. One of the most common arguments uh, that the other side makes is that, look, you already have to get a background check. How do you respond when people say that? Well, a lot of people don't realize that in 31 states, you can buy a gun at a garage sale or online and meet in person or at a gun show with absolutely no background check. Um, the, the federal law only covers licensed sales. So if you go buy a gun at Walmart, yes, you do have to get a background check in every state. But millions of guns are sold every year without a background check through private sales. What I always point out to people about this is, one, uh, going back to what you were saying about the gun companies is the reason that they want it that way is because, you know, just like if you sell your car, you're going to go buy another car, right? So they they want these transactions to happen as much as possible because then people re- replace it with another gun. They make another gun, make money off of it. Uh, and then the other thing I point out to folks is if, because another common argument they make is, uh, well, look, uh, people are always going to, criminals are always going to figure out how to get guns. Well, then why would we have this entire, this huge loophole in the law that says, hey, criminals, go buy them over here? Yeah. You know, it's, it's seen by the NRA as a barrier to entry as opposed to a public safety measure. Yeah, basically, it's seen by the NRA as uh, what you're saying is it's, it, it makes it a little harder to get our product. Uh, exactly. And we would like to just get rid of uh, that thing that makes it harder to get our product. Even if it kills people. Right. One of the other arguments that you always hear is, look, guns actually make people safer. The other version is uh, good guys with guns are the only ones keeping us safe. So data shows over and over again that that actually isn't true. Um, You know, Moms Demand Action is not opposed to the Second Amendment or gun ownership for protection. But people should know the facts. Uh, The NRA demanded the, the, the CDC basically stop most gun violence prevention research back in the 90s because research was showing that gun ownership did endanger Americans. We just saw a study come out that said after the gun buying boon after Sandy Hook, there were so many more negligent shootings, right? What we call accidental shootings. So if you look at the data, that isn't true. But at the same time, we know for sure that women who are in abusive situations, who live in a home where there's a gun, are five times more likely to be shot and killed mm-hmm. than the average woman. As somebody who served in the military, what I always point out to this whole argument of, look, a good guy with a gun is going to stop a bad guy with a gun, I think a lot of people don't really recognize that using a firearm is a perishable skill. You know, there, And that's what, that's what you're talking about when you say there, there were a lot of negligent shootings when there were a whole lot of people buying, buying up guns that maybe hadn't had them before or hadn't used that gun before. You know, that's why in the Army, we had to have really extensive training. Uh, Anytime we got a new weapon, like if if we were going to carry a weapon that we hadn't carried before, we had to train on that weapon. And then every year, you have to qualify. You have to, like, go in and demonstrate you still know how to handle this weapon. You can still shoot accurately with this weapon. Otherwise, you can't actually carry the weapon in your work. And that's why, like, in the ad, I referred to it as I was taught to use and respect my rifle. You know, respect being a really important part of that. It's a tool. And the best way to illustrate it is the concept of muzzle discipline. 
we were taught that you you always treat a weapon as though it's loaded, whether it is or not. Even if you're holding it, you're the one who, you know, removed the rounds from it. You know it's not loaded. You still treat it like it's loaded to the point of muzzle discipline, muzzle being the end of the barrel. You don't, you pretend that there's a laser beam coming. This is what they teach you. You pretend there's a laser beam coming out of the end of the barrel, and it's a real laser that can cut anybody so that as you're walking around with the unloaded weapon, you are not even supposed to let the barrel sort of sweep across where it would point at somebody for even a half second, the idea being that then the laser beam would cut that person. That's muzzle discipline. And yet we somehow believe that people are going to go use this complicated tool, they're going to pick it up, use it for the first time, and all of a sudden they're Bruce Willis and Die Hard. Well, and police will tell you that um, the rate of being able to accurately shoot your target, a moving target, is low even for police, Mm -hmm. right? You have adrenaline, despite all of the training they have. And yet every single year, the NRA is trying to strip mandatory training from state laws around gun ownership. So maybe if we were a country like Israel that has a lot of guns, but yet they have incredibly rigid standards and and, uh, responsibilities that go along with that right— it would be different, but that's not where we are right now in America. Well, the other thing to point out about Israel is that everybody in Israel, man or woman, does a couple of years in the military where, right. where they are trained on firearms. Another argument they make is, look, it's a, it's a slippery slope. You know, people will say, okay, I understand what you're saying about background checks, but if you start putting in gun regulations, uh, eventually you're coming from my gun. You know, no no lawmakers that I have ever had a discussion with in the last five years have ever suggested a gun ban or a confiscation or even a registry. We are talking about common sense gun laws like background checks and keeping guns out of the hands of dangerous people. And if that's not a conversation we can have and, and the opposite solution is to have no laws at all, I think it will just get us to where we are, which is having a 25 times higher rate of gun homicide than any developed nation. So if more guns and fewer gun laws were the answer, we would be the safest nation in the world. We're, we're not. Right. Yeah. Sort of tied to that is then people will next say, they'll say, okay, but gun control just doesn't work. You know, people who, who want guns, they're going to get guns. Oh, that is <laughs> my, next to Chicago. That's one of my least favorite arguments. Oh, we're getting, um, we're getting to Chicago in a second. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We know these laws work. And and I get so tired of arguing with anecdotes, but that's the problem when the gun lobby controls the research that's being done. But when we look at the states, like the 19 states that have closed their background check loophole, we see gun homicides, gun suicides, domestic gun homicides, police shootings, gun trafficking, almost all cut in half. We know these laws work. There is data and proof out there. So the idea that criminals will get guns no matter what is is completely false. So right now there's somebody listening to this and they're saying, okay, fine, but when I use facts with people, it doesn't work. So let me throw out something folks can use for that, which is I point out to people, look, uh, peop, there are people who want to shoplift. And you could say, you know, no matter what you do, people are still going to try to shoplift. Yet we know that when we make that against the law, fewer people actually shoplift because it's illegal and they know that they can get in trouble. And the analogy I use is when I was secretary of state here in Missouri, one of the things that we taught people about securities regulation, because I was in charge of that, was, look, if, if your broker is not actually registered with the state, which is required by the law, that's a bit of a red flag that they might be planning to scam you because they're already operating outside the law. The idea being that 
you know, when people go around the law in order to buy a gun, there's probably a higher likelihood that they're going to use it for criminal activity. So it makes sense, even if someone tries to go around the law to get the gun, now you have a red flag and you can stop gun crime. So to say that, well, they may still get a gun, yeah, but if you figure out they did it illegally, you probably stopped a gun crime. Well, the conversations I've had with um, members of Congress beholden to the NRA goes something like this. Uh they say criminals will get guns no matter what. I say, well, does that mean we should pull all the stop signs out of the ground? <laughs> and they say, but driving is not in the Constitution. So it just it <laughs> becomes circular. Well, what do you say when they say, look, it's a constitutional right? Well, you know, in the Heller decision in the Supreme Court, Scalia clearly said, you know, that, that the Second Amendment can be regulated. And that's all we're talking about. Well, and also, like, just from a practical matter, when the Second Amendment was written, you know, you could fire four pretty inaccurate rounds in a minute, uh, not to mention the fact that uh, I always say to people, like, do you think people ought to have tanks or bazookas? Like, at some point, you're actually for gun control. It, it always is amazing to me, the whole idea of, like, when people say, uh, look, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, yeah, like, I guess you could say that, you know, nuclear weapons don't destroy countries. Countries destroy countries. But we're still trying to stop North Korea from getting a nuclear weapon. Right. When people say guns don't kill people, people kill people, I always say, yes, well, that's why we want background checks on people. Yeah. Okay. Chicago. People say, people say, look, look at Chicago's gun laws and look at their violence. This is the Groundhog Day of tweets, (laughs) which is... How you like those laws in Chicago? Yes, Illinois has strong gun laws. However, Indiana, where I used to live, has incredibly weak gun laws, thanks to Vice President Mike Pence. And it is right next to Chicago. So all you have to do is get in your car in Chicago, drive 20 minutes to a gun show in Indiana, load up your car with dozens and dozens of guns with no background check required because you're in Indiana turn right around and sell those to whomever back in Chicago. So when you look at where the majority of crime guns come from in Chicago, it is Indiana. Mm -hmm. Unless we're going to build a wall around Chicago, um, you know, guns are going to, to cross state borders as easily as cars do. So that is why we do fight for federal laws on this, because right now we have sort of a patchwork of laws. And when a, law, a state with strong gun laws is next to a state with weak gun laws, they're much more vulnerable. I'm really worried that uh, President Trump's going to listen to this and then call for a wall to be erected around <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> we'll leave it in anyway, though. Um, <laughs> so bonus question, what are our best arguments? What do you feel like are the arguments that resonate the most to stay on offense on this? First, that gun laws work. So when you look at data. It shows that stronger gun laws save lives. Um, It's that weak laws in states like, for example, Missouri, right? So Mm -hmm. that was a state that had very strong gun laws, laws completely reversed them. And now they're seeing gun homicides and gun suicides spike, that those laws don't work, that they actually endanger not just the people in those states, but in other states. And it's, it's difficult because we don't have much research being done. And so the other argument is that this is a crisis in this country. 33,000 Americans are shot and killed every year. We've got to put more money into understanding our crisis and how to stop it. Thanks so much for doing this. 
Thank you. It was fun. I don't know how you can listen to Shannon and not be inspired. I appreciate her coming on the show and everything that she does to protect Americans from gun violence. Since last week's episode, a lot of you have been tweeting at me with the hashtag grab an or, and I think you're onto something. So this week, using that hashtag, tell the world how you plan in 2018 to grab an or. Maybe it's a cause or an organization or a campaign, whatever it is, I want to hear about it. I hope you'll thank Shannon too. You can find ways to contact her in the show notes. And if there's something you want us to know, but you don't want to tell the whole world via social media, you can email hellomajority54 at gmail.com. I'm Jason Kander. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening to Majority 54. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world. For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.